Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Based on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, the musical West Side Story tells the tale of forbidden love across enemy lines. City Springs Theatre Company currently has the musical on stage at the Byers Theatre, and later this hour, we'll hear from the creatives behind the production. Also coming up, muralist Eric Nine shares his artistic inspiration and his incredible passion for Atlanta in our series, Speaking of the Arts. But first, African-American figurative painter Bob Thompson produced more than a thousand paintings in his short life. He died just shy of his 29th birthday in 1966, and he was known for his bold and colorful artwork of silhouettes. His work is currently on view at the High Museum in the exhibition, Bob Thompson, This House is Mine. City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke with the High's modern and contemporary art curator, Michael Rooks, and he began by discussing some of Thompson's influences. Over the course of Thompson's short career, uh, he was influenced by traditional European painters from the Quattrocento, for example, Piero della Francesca through to the the 19th century with artists like Francisco Goya. So he was, as the curator of the exhibition says, grappling with a canon of art history that was predominantly European. And grappling is the right word because I think what he was doing was really competing in a way, in a sense, in a studio competing with Goya, competing with Piero della Francesca. In the same way that artists like, for example, Alex Katz competes with Matisse in a studio, these are, artists that they wish to appropriate, but also wish to take on in a way that is competitive, but also uh, aspirational. Mm -hmm. And would you tell us about the story behind the title of the exhibit, This House is Mine? The title of the exhibition is taken from a painting in the exhibition. It's a relatively small, modest painting. The title is evocative. I mean, it suggests that Thompson, as a young artist, a young, ambitious painter, is hoping to, aiming at appropriating not only his uh, art historical forebears, but making a claim, staking a claim in the art world, making space for himself in the art world at that time in the 19, late 50s and 60s. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you were just saying about competing in the art world. Like, this house is mine. I'm competing against the European old masters to claim this space. Yeah, uh, there is a... A wonderful quote in Thelma Golden's catalog for her exhibition at the Whitney from 1998 from Ralph Ellison that essentially says that as a Black artist in the 50s, that everything is kind of up for grabs for appropriation, but also not only to appropriate and possess it, but to recreate it through the lens of your own experience as a Black artist. And I'm paraphrasing the quote. But that's something that I think was important to Thompson, obviously, given the content of a lot of the paintings. But was what was first and foremost for him, I believe, was this canon of traditional painting that he fell in love with. And that canon was in his sights as a young, ambitious painter. Mm-hmm. One of the recreations that he does, or interpretation, is his painting called Blue Madonna. And it's his interpretation of the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus sitting on her lap. What 
European influences are expressed in this piece, as well as the jazz influences he incorporates into his work. Blue Madonna is a fabulous painting. There are a number of different influences, I think, that the artist brings to bear in that painting, but all across his oeuvre. So Blue Madonna, you could think about the Fauvist painters, symbolist of the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, symbolist painters, European symbolist painters of the 19th century, all the way back to Botticelli, you know, again, thinking about uh, painting of the Quattrocento. So he is someone who has this voracious appetite for art history and has a, an incredible sort of image bank in his mind, both from looking at art books and also from his experiences in Europe, going to art museums, seeing things firsthand. So all of those art historical references and images, he, I think, brings to bear in his studio when he's making paintings. At the same time, as you point out, music was an important part of his life. He, in fact, was a musician. He played the drums. We have a self-portrait of him at a set of bongos, for example. And that was an important part of his social life in New York when he left Louisville, Kentucky, where he was born and raised and ultimately went to school. Upon graduating from University of Louisville in 1958, he moved to New York. And of course, the art scene in New York, the black art scene in New York was jazz. And that's where a lot of the, the painters, the post-war abstract painters hung out in jazz clubs. And so he met people like Alex Katz and de Kooning and you name it, a host of, of canonical 20th century abstract painters and figurative painters. Uh, at the same time, he met Don Cherry, um, Ornette Coleman, Charlie Hayden, all these amazing jazz musicians and composers who are, are canonical in and of themselves in terms of the history of 20th century jazz. Mm -hmm. And I read that he also painted these jazz musicians. So you can see there's a painting called Homage to Nina Simone he has. Yeah, and that's a relatively late, late painting. It's a painting that is painted in the style of uh, Nicolas Poussin, uh, for example, uh, this French neoclassical painter. Um, much of the work of his last two years is dedicated to or riffing off of Poussin and these very neoclassical compositions. But yeah, it's painting dedicated to Nina Simone. She is featured in sort of the background. It, it's just curious that the artist placed Nina Simone's figure in a figural group that has ostensibly little to do with her own political feelings and position in the world as an expatriate. The largest painting in the exhibition has to do with the music scene in New York. It's called The Garden of Music, it's from 1960. Uh, and it features musicians I mentioned earlier, Charlie Hayden, Don Cherry, others. And it's uh, this kind of bucolic image of musicians playing in the nude, uh, surrounded by other nude figures in a landscape, kind of a bucolic, paradisiacal landscape to suggest a kind of yeah, paradise or utopia that perhaps the artist was expressing through his affiliation and association with these great artists, not only the musicians, but also the painters he met in New York. Mm -hmm. In this painting in particular, he adds some eyes, nose characteristics, but in a lot of his paintings, there aren't distinct characteristics to these silhouetted figures. And like you said, they're in the nude, they're outside. That was also a common theme in a lot of his portraits as well as them just being solid colors, red, blue, beige, brown. How was he reflecting on the world's view of race in these pieces? That's a, I think, complicated and interesting question because at the same time, Thompson was not unsympathetic with the, the very self-assertive aspect of his of friends who were, had separatist ideological points of view, like Leroy Jones, who became Amiri Baraka, for example, poet and writer, uh, thinker, or A.B. Spellman. But at the same time, as a painter, I think he was loath to relinquish the kind of mythic universalism that he loved in work of traditional European painting. So there was, I think, a struggle there. One of the things that I think addresses his relation to race as an American Black painter is the fact that he's making figurative paintings at a time when the predominant milieu painting in the United States was abstraction. In fact, 
at the time of a sort of peak time in the middle of the 60s when Bob Thompson had arrived at a sort of mature style at the Venice Biennale, the US Pavilion featured abstract painters and pop artists. So uh, figurative painting was totally left out of the picture at that point in the middle of the 1960s in terms of the avant-garde, the American avant-garde. So he's working on the, on the outside as a, a, a peripheral figure on the margins as a, a figurative painter to begin with, as were artists of the Harlem Renaissance, right? So uh, I think positioning himself on the margins as a figurative painter, an American artist who was addressing race in the content of his paintings, but not necessarily in the composition. He was carving a place out for him, a space for uh, his voice in an, an exclusionary art world, particularly in, in the United States, even in, in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on top of commenting on race, he also talked about and examines interracial relationships in his paintings. In 1960, he married a white woman, Carol Plinda. And this was, of course, five years before interracial marriage was even legalized in the United States. Can you talk about the paintings that he examines interracial relationships, such as The Hanging and Black Monster? Yeah, it's a very good point, Summer, that Thompson married his wife in 1960. It was only five years after the brutal murder of Emmett Till, for example, who, of course, tragically whistled at a white woman, and that was uh, the pretext for his horrible murder. So these were very real and palpable dangers for this artist and for all black men in the United States at the time. So, I mean, how could an artist, a black artist at that time, not bring into his work, his feelings uh, and thoughts about this kind of existential threat, right? Um, especially an artist who is marrying a white woman in 1960. And Black Monster is, uh, is an early painting from 1959 uh, in the exhibition. We, we placed it adjacent to a painting titled The Hanging from, uh, I believe it's around the same time, 58 or 59. Two paintings that are very dark, emotionally very dark, obviously, and scary. Um, they're also, in terms of their tonality, very dark. So they're reflecting his sort of artistic influences at the time as well. But um, Black Monster, I think, more so than The Hanging, because it's more graphic, features this, literally this monstrous, monstrous figure on the upper left portion of the canvas, entering the scene with his fangs showing, attacking, or pouncing on a white woman. And I think that while you can make references to other sort of art historical subjects that are mythological, uh, in this sense, how can you not talk about the fact that the issue of interracial sex or marriage was historically a pretext for racial terrorism at that time and still is? And that's that early work he directly tackles these issues that are existential and that are part of the American Black experience. The Hanging is a painting that also uh, does so as well, not as uh, directly, in my opinion. It's very poetic, it's just disturbing painting. Poetic in the sense that the subject is kind of hard to make out until you spend some time with the painting um, and is partially abstracted. So you you have a very like this creepy sense that there's something that is very, very wrong in this picture and it requires a commitment as a viewer to, to find it. And then that's when the realities kind of hit home as a viewer of this painting that this is made in the, you know, in the late 50s and is addressing a horrible legacy of racism in this country and, and racial terrorism. Mm. Many of his paintings were very vibrant and colorful, but one of them that really lacks color besides black and gray is the one titled The Funeral of Jan Mueller. And this was created in honor of the 1950s expressionist painter, which he never met in person. And ironically, I read that they both passed away at a young age, Jan passed away at 35, and as you mentioned, Bob Thompson passed away at 28. What was it about Jan Mueller's artwork that inspired Bob Thompson's own style? Jan Mueller wasn't influenced by Bob Thompson because of his background as a German expressionist painter. He was a German expat, like many painters who emigrated to the United States during World War II. 
including Thompson's teacher, uh, Ulfred Vilke, uh, his teacher at the University of Louisville. In fact, Thompson was Vilke's assistant for a short time at the University of Louisville. So through this association with his teacher, his mentor at, in Louisville, he learned of other figurative expressionist painters. And there was a, a small kind of movement of figurative expressionism going on in the United States at the same time. I think in part due to the influence of people like Vilke or Max Beckman in St. Louis, for example, all these great painters who moved to the U.S. and began to teach uh, younger generations. So the painting of Jan Mueller was a, a painting that Bob Thompson made in, as a dedication to uh, an artist who he was introduced to early on in his career as a student and who influenced his choice to become a, a figurative painter, an expressionist figurative painter. And you see a further influence in the early work in, in our exhibition, the paintings from the late 50s and 1960 are all in the same gallery. So you can see the influence of Mueller and Wilke and others in the choice of chroma and the tonality of the paintings are dark, they're browns and blacks, and the paintings become colorful only after Thompson moved to New York and started to find a whole other set of influences that were contemporary from musicians to painters. Hmm. I feel like that's really reflective on his life. He comes to New York and finds this inspiration and then the color, you know, comes into his paintings, like the jazz scene and how colorful it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really yeah. cool. How is Bob Thompson's artwork similar to Jan Mueller's? What did he take from Jan and then make his own? I think from what I can make, and this is just my own opinion, knowing a little bit about Jan Mueller's work, that Thompson found confidence in a form of figurative painting that did not rely upon observation, that, that didn't rely upon you know academic figure studies and anatomical correctness. And you know these were just, if you look at some of Mueller's paintings, you see these figures that are almost like fleshed out stick figures that are really more about a, a feeling of perhaps anxiety, emotional. The, the, the figures express a kind of emotional content rather than the details of observation. So I think that Thompson took from Mueller and Mueller's generation of German Expressionists the, the freedom to make a figurative painting that was, that was coming from a place of emotion and coming from a place of, uh, of expressiveness rather than something that was about rendering something in a realistic way. Yeah. When I was doing my research for this conversation, I read that some art critics have said that Bob Thompson's paintings looked rushed in his brush strokes. And it wasn't necessarily abstract because figurative and abstract are very distinctly different. But some people said it was as almost as if he was frantically trying to get out onto the canvas what was in his mind, which I feel foretells his future, like a mm. short-lived life gone too soon, mm. you know, like trying to get out there as quickly as possible. How did his creative style leave a permanent mark on the art world today? I think your observation about this sort of spontaneity but urgency in Bob Thompson's paintings is interesting in it. There may be something to that, that he sensed a, a kind of urgency in living. Certainly, as a Black artist in the United States, who is not immune to forms of racism, whether they're extrinsic or intrinsic, there was no doubt always a sense of existential angst and urgency in, in his life. But as a painter, uh, I think what you've hit on is that Thompson had this voracious appetite and desire to consume the everything and learn everything about the art world and, and learn more and more and to see more and more and to the output for him was in his studio were the paintings he made in his studio and he couldn't make enough. He was very prolific for an artist whose career lasted eight years. You know, we can make a comparison to Jean-Michel Basquiat who also died at the age of 28. Incredibly prolific artist whose sense of urgency is really palpable in his work. In, in a sense, I don't want to make a, a very easy or 
facile comparison between Thompson and Basquiat because they were black and because they died at 28, but there is this same sense of existential urgency in both of these artists' careers that is interesting. And that I think speaks to not only their conditions, the condition of being an artist, period, in the world, but also perhaps a inner kind of awareness that, you know, life's short. And when you're traveling through life so quickly, so rapidly, perhaps there is a presentiment that you might reach your destination sooner rather than later. Michael Rooks, the High's modern and contemporary art curator. Bob Thompson, This House is Mine, is on view at the High Museum through September 11th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll find out what it's like when you're a jet and hear about City Springs Theater's production of West Side Story. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. So when West Side Story opened on Broadway in 1957, it marked a radical change in musical theater. And since then, almost every song from the score is now considered its standard. The performance is known for the cinematic flow of its staging and the integration of script, song, dance, and set. West Side Story is on stage now in Atlanta at the Byers Theater, a production of City Springs Theater Company, and it's running through July 24th. Recently, City Lights host Lois Reitzes caught up with the show's director, Daniel Kuttner, and the executive director of City Springs Theater, Natalie Delancey. Kuttner began with a synopsis of the musical. Well, it very much follows the Romeo and Juliet tale, It's about two warring gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, the Jets being primarily white, even though there is an European immigrant history, and the uh, Puerto Rican community, where Puerto Rico just became part of the United States, yet there was not an acceptance of the community on the mainland. So we have a battle between the Jets and the Sharks, and we have a love story within that of a Jet boy named Tony falling in love with a Puerto Rican girl named Maria, and a forbidden love with tragic consequences. The original West Side Story had a predominantly white cast. 60 years later, the casting was more appropriate with Latinx actors, both in the 2020 Broadway revival and the film remake in 2021. How does your cast address representation? Well, I think our cast is very diverse. You know, it's always a challenge. It's an ongoing challenge, even in 2022, to get as many people from you know minority groups to come out it's getting better over the years but it's still a challenge you know and we did we did terrific and what uh, natalie and the crew at city springs has done to promote that inclusivity and to encourage people to come out we have diverse talent and terrific talent so it's a big step forward Hmm. let's talk about the music Nearly every song from this score 
is considered a standard. Songs that continue to be performed in concerts, in clubs, on recordings. Which songs do you consider most outstanding or personal favorites? Well, my personal favorites, I'm obsessed, you could say, with the connection between Tony and Maria. So when I see that balcony come out and I hear them sing tonight together, there is nothing more gratifying than hearing that duet. It just soars. It's earnest. It's honest. It just, it makes you want all of the trouble and the angst and the fighting and everything that sort of looms large back then and even today, unfortunately, disappear where we can sort of live in a moment in time between two people that's so earnest and pure. With suns and moons all over the place Tonight, tonight The world is wild and bright Going mad, shooting sparks into space Today the world was just an address A place for me to live in No better than all You know, it's more of a dance number, but uh, I'll go with my favorite number in the show. And I actually love our number Dance at the Gym, because I think uh, in particular, our choreographer, Cindy Mora Reiser, is just incredible with how she has manipulated all the people that are in that number and and the way that they kind of fight uh, with each other in that number. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. And I think our orchestra backs it up just beautifully as well. So it's it's a very exciting number to me in the show. The song America is sung between the female and male sharks. The women are talking about why America or how America is better than Puerto Rico. The men aren't as impressed. How does this song illustrate both sides of the immigrant experience? Well, for me, you know, it's that ongoing promise of a better life here and how we romanticize what it means to be in America, either from here, well, who's really from here? We're such a young country or immigrated to America. And the notion of the American dream, how there's more opportunity, perhaps less prejudice, a better life altogether. And it's a very interesting sort of, it it really straddles the line, doesn't it? Because especially recently, and and certainly within the last few years of, of politics, we've been challenged and America has been challenged, and we'll see what happens. I'm hopeful. I have to be hopeful. But it's very interesting how that that notion, just the notion of America, still lights people up, and there is still that optimism that this is the land of the free and the land of opportunity. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. Forest must be in America. And uh, it's very interesting how the creators of this show, even back in the 1950s, were able to recognize that, you know, that sort of duality of what that means to certain people. And so you can look at it in an optimistic way, or you can look at it in an ironical way, but it's still very, very relevant, scarily relevant, quite frankly. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. 
Jerome Robbins is credited with conceiving the show. He also doubled as director and choreographer. I read that no previous musical had included so much dance so dramatically. Why is the choreography of West Side Story revolutionary? Well, first of all, to echo what Natalie had said previously, to choreograph West Side Story is one of the most difficult things you can do in musical theater, especially with what you just said about Jerome Robbins. I mean, he was a legend and he created a language for dance that nobody had ever done before that. Not to mention dancing involving a story with a lot of fighting and gang violence and gun violence and and rumbling and to create a beautiful language out of something so scary and intimidating and to keep you on that line where you're feeling the tension in the narrative, but you're also recognizing the beauty of the dance is an enormous challenge. And what Cindy did was because Cindy's, she's number one, an incredible choreographer, perhaps the best I've ever worked with. And number two, she's a storyteller. So to tell the story in dance, to give a nod to the original, because how can you not? You cannot abandon completely Jerome Robbins' choreography. But to find little nuggets where you can give a nod to the original, but also create your own material, your own language, because there are many ways to skin the cat, I I thought was a feat of genius. How does the choreography showcase the conflict between the sharks and the jets? Well, there's a lot of physical altercations. So Cindy created a language where there are boys flipping over each other. They're fighting, they're moving in sync, but it's this sort of disjointed, almost modern dance type of interaction where you see the beauty, like I said before, you see the beauty of the movement, but the tension is always there. So at the very beginning of the show, It starts with a lot of intimidation as jets walk in, as sharks walk in, as one group is outnumbered and then the other group is outnumbered. And you see, and Cindy has created a language for them to to build that tension and for them to move their bodies in such a way where it looks like they're they're dancing, but they're fighting. And it's, uh, it's really, it's an incredible feat, incredible feat. And Lois, I want to add, our, our cast of dancers is truly just top-notch. Daniel, wouldn't you say? I mean, 100%. these performers have have really taken Cindy's choreography and just embraced it fully. Uh, and it's tough. It's, it's not easy, the work that they are doing in this show, but they make it look absolutely uh, just seamless. It's brilliant the way that uh, the dancing has really driven this production. Yeah, and how much dance drives the plot, the action in this story. My husband and I went to see the the revival on Broadway in 2020. We actually saw it in January of 2020, right before the world shut down. And ahead of that, with our daughter, we rewatched the 1961 film. I was a child when that came out, but still in my mind, I mean, when I think of West Side Story, I think of the music. When we watched the film two years ago, I was stunned by how much of it was dance. I mean, it's effectively a ballet with a script. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And New, and New York City Ballet, uh, repeatedly, every other year, they'll do West Side Story Suite as part of their season because it is it is ballet and it's gorgeous. And you can tell that story in pieces just through the dance, 100%. Reading about the legacy of the show, 
we repeatedly encounter references to how brilliantly the show integrates script, song, dance, and set. Would you describe your sets for the show? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, our set is very simple and it needs to be very simple because you need to create, at least I felt that we needed to create a, a big open space, a, a, a playground, if you will, of a neighborhood that would allow for a huge cast to tell this story through song, dance, and words. So what we did was there are interior locations, Doc's drugstore where Tony works and where Doc is one of the few adults in the show, a voice of reason, and Anita and Maria's place of work, the bridal shop, and um, Maria's bedroom, and of course the balcony, but all designed in such a way where nothing really calls attention to itself. It's not meant to be something where you look at a set and you're like, oh, isn't that gorgeous? It's meant to be serviceable. It's meant to move. It's meant to allow both the actors and the audience to orient themselves in the story because it moves so quickly. And the last thing I wanted to do was for scenery and for production to get in the way of a very brisk storytelling experience because you would immediately, and I was saying this to the cast because the cast was so, is, was, I'm saying, is so good. I said, guys, this is, you're doing brilliantly. And this show moves a mile a minute. And anytime there's a slight dip, you feel it. Don't let it dip. These are passionate kids. They're misguided kids. They're troubled kids. They're on their own. They're on the street. They're taking solace in the in their respective gangs. And life is moving a million miles a minute. And so I did not want the scenery to be to get in the way of that. So when you see the production, you see pieces that just sort of move in and out and flow. And we have brilliant, we put the onus on, on lighting and we have a brilliant young lighting designer, uh, Dalton Hamilton, who Natalie and, and Shore brought on a brilliant young kid uh, who did so magnificently and a brilliant projection designer, Ryan Beldock, who also enhances uh, the scenery through a psych and LED wall in the back. So it's all very fluid. It's not about scenery. It's about everything that you described, book, music, lyrics, staging, dance. Mm. When you're a jet, you're a jet All the way from your first cigarette To your last dying day When you're a jet, if the spit hits the fan You got brothers around, you're a family man You're never alone You're never disconnected You're home with your own When company's expected You're well protected Then you are set with a capital J Which you'll never forget Till they caught you away When you're a jet you stay up. So meet Tony and me at the dog days dance at the gym tonight. We can't rumble in the gym and it'd be lousy with cops. It's a social mixer, so we'll mix until the time's right to fix the rumble for tomorrow night. Be there 10 p.m. Punctual light, dress to kill, walking tall. We always walk tall, we're jets! The greatest. When you're a Violence. jet, you're the Adolescent gangs, racial prejudice. These topics were new to the musical theater stage in 1957. Do you think the themes of West Side Story land differently with audiences today? I think they probably land in a very similar fashion. We were mid-rehearsal when the Supreme Court delivered their decision on Roe v. Wade. I'm, I'm not a very political creature, but the fact that I know every candidate for Senate and governor and Congress and to see commercial after commercial in June 
the money being poured into the state of Georgia to position themselves, Democrats, Republicans, et cetera, the climate is very hot, very, very hot. And uh, Roe v. Wade was a, it was a shock. And I think our cast collectively, we, we had to chat about it at rehearsal. It was really something in terms, in terms of turning back the clock. And then you have Justice Thomas uh, saying, well, we should maybe address LGBTQ rights and maybe we should put other things on the docket. And you think, oh my Lord, here we are doing a show about intolerance and bigotry and people's fears of people who are different. And look where we are right now. Look at the national conversation. So, you know, I feel like it's there for people who are, you know, uh, this is not about, you know, picking a side <laughs> or this is not a show for Democrats or progressives. Uh, it's a beautiful show and there's a lot of resonating things for, for all areas, but I feel especially uh, within this past month, if not these past several months and years, it's really made this show as relevant as ever. And I think the people who were watching this show in 1957, it was a scandal. You know, I've worked for Hal Prince for 20 years. And when, when he would talk about producing West Side Story, nobody wanted it. They had, they had a producer. They lost a producer. Sondheim called Mr. Prince and said, we lost our producer. We have no show. And he picked up the ball because I think there was just a pervasive fear of what this, uh, what presenting a musical like this to the masses, especially Broadway back then, because as you indicated, Lois, earlier, a lot of the, you know, billboard hits, they came from Broadway shows. Popular music was the music of Broadway. But Broadway was much more connected in our society than it is today, which is unfortunate but it made it all that more scary to sort of push the envelope. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a loaded thing, even for West Side Story, a classic like West Side Story, if you really examine what this show is about and juxtapose that with what is happening in the world right now. Natalie, why did City Springs Theater want West Side Story to close the 2021-22 season? Well, originally, West Side Story was uh, actually on our season in July 2020. Oh. So we we were unable to do it at that time, obviously, because of COVID. And so putting it back on the end of our fourth season, you know, for every reason that, that Dan just said, Schuler and I thought it made sense. The timing made even more sense than ever for us to do the show. So I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that we are producing the show in such a timely manner. And unfortunately, that is the reality. But I think if we can do some good with our patron base and tell this story effectively, which which I certainly believe that Dan, Miles, and Cindy, our creative team, have done, then hopefully we can we can do good in the community here in Atlanta. So it's more timely than ever. Pretty, oh so pretty, I feel pretty and witty and bright and I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. I feel charming, oh so charming, it's alarming how charming I feel and so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real. Director Daniel Kuttner and Executive Director of City Springs Theater, Natalie DeLancey. West Side Story is on stage at Byers Theater through July 24th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
Coming up, muralist Eric Nine and our series, Speaking of the Arts. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear from local artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Eric Nine, and I'm a muralist here in Atlanta, and I absolutely love painting feelings. I'm always trying to tell a story. I describe my artwork like pages in a book, but mainly I'm trying to provoke some sort of emotion or some kind of emotional reaction, whether I'm painting a historical figure that might have inspired me, or if I'm painting my Twisted Circus series which is a story of an elephant and a ballerina that are complete opposites of each other, but they still manage to fall in love. I take these two characters that I made up and use them to just talk about social issues, the human experience, and ultimately, no matter how different we are from each other, we can coexist and we could even fall in love. I got started doing art just as a child, drawing, doing watercolors, I remember it was one of the first things that my parents actually acknowledged that I was good at. So, I mean, I spent all my free time drawing. I started writing and drawing my own comic books. I would draw on everything. I'd paint anything that I thought I could make look better. I would put paint on it. Um, And I just never grew out of it. I find it curious how most people grow out of coloring and drawing as adults. But um, I never did. I just fell deeper in love with it the older I got. I guess what inspires me most is people, the human experience. I just love everything about our struggle. I am totally fascinated with the idea that we have a short time period of life and we know that life will end, but somehow we still wake up in the morning and continue to press forward, making things better for us, ourselves, and our community around us. I know we're not perfect, but we definitely are the most complicated creatures on the planet, and I love every detail of our existence. Even the sad parts. I'm appreciative when I cry. I just think that this whole experience is worth documenting, and I do that through my art. I'm always just chasing a feeling first and then the visuals just naturally come after that and it's just worked for me like that. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York and I've lived up and down the East Coast, multiple cities, but I moved to Atlanta in 2004 and there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the things that I have been able to accomplish here with my artwork and just being creative, I wouldn't have been able to do in any other city in this country. Atlanta is my home. I love Atlanta. I would bleed for Atlanta. This city has welcomed and embraced me like no other city. When I first moved to Atlanta in 2004, my first art experience was there's this um, traveling urban art show called Art Beats and Lyrics. Maybe a lot of you know about it, but they were actually hosting that event at the High Museum. So I saw urban street art in this very prestige highbrow museum and that was it. I knew I found my place and the motivation was off the chart and I never looked back. So yes, Atlanta, I love Atlanta and yes, Atlanta is in everything I do. I'm deeply rooted in this community. The Beltline is my gallery. Carroll Street Cafe is my office. Northside Tavern is where I let loose. I got family from Decatur all the way up to Upper West Midtown. I am home and I love it here. You can see my art all over the city. I have murals almost in every corner. A good handful of stuff on the Beltline for sure. And plenty of more on the way. I'm booked out for the next four months already. So I'm super excited about that. I also got some canvases on display at MCD Gallery. That's at the Underground. We do events, Twisted Circus events. Um, You can learn more about that at twistedcircusatl.com. I'm on Instagram, eric underscore nine, or you can go to my website, ericnine.com. Hope to hear from you guys. I love my community and I'm always looking for ways to give back. 
muralist Eric Nine, and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Eric Nine's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Zoocot Gallery's exhibition, Presence, a Celebration of Black Fatherhood. Plus, author and film buff Scott McGee shares secrets of stunt work in his new book, Danger on the Silver Screen. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.